0: Difference makers all face the same question – how can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change. Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Well, welcome to the Massive Small Stories podcast. Uh, I'm Liam, and I'm joined by my gorgeous Co-host Kelvin, you're looking particularly dapper today in that dapper. lovely cap. Yep. Um, so uh, this is one of our first uh, podcasts of this new year, mm-hmm. and I just wondered whether you'd made any uh, New Year's resolutions.
1: To be a much nicer person to you, I think it was one of the one thing I was, I was yeah I've yeah. set out Achie- to do achievable and, ones, achievable I mean, ones, yeah. achievable ones. Yeah. When we last chatted, you you told me you spent your Christmas emptying the dishwasher. And you wondered if there was a word for it
0: oh yeah 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 reckless drinking ca- grandchild chaos and emptying the dishwasher okay
1: it's called hobby. dystopia ah, okay dystopia, dystopia.
0: <laughs> how long did it take you to come up on that one not very long he's <laughs> <laughs> a genius uh, uh, dear listeners uh, so, so any uh, apart from uh, trying to get on with me a bit better any resolutions
1: um to do these podcasts really well, so people really listen to them. Yeah. Okay. Because I think we've got such a big message, and the message is not getting out to to people at the moment on an alternative way of making the kind of places that are incredibly important to us. So we're quite fortunate to have an incredibly important person, Michael Mahaffy. Michael's an urbanist, uh, an architectural theorist, an urban philosopher, researcher, educator, and he's also executive director of the Sustasis Foundation, which is based in Portland so michael joins us uh uh, today and welcome michael good to have you with us
2: Welcome,
0: thank you michael you're very welcome
1: so i i came across michael um i think it might have been the university of strathclyde or could it be the princess foundation i think it could have been one of those two organizations and um michael's incredibly interesting because he's worked with he's written books on two of my heroes and i don't know which is one number one hero number two hero but certainly jane jacobs and christopher alexander sit out there as being uh the, the shining beacons of urbanism and uh he wrote a book called cities alive uh jane jacobs christopher alexander and the roots of an urban a new urban renaissance we'd like to try and touch on this um to, to a large degree and then written a number of other books with uh another person nicolas sarangaros who's a very interesting mathematician uh, called Design for a living planet and uh been involved in editing uh what's called um a uh, city is not a tree which is um, yeah. uh, a book version of, of Christopher Alexander's famous statement. And I'd like to come back and talk about uh, City is Not a Tree again, because I think that little essay for me is incredibly important in, in, in my, uh, early, my early um, educational career. So, We're a lot of people. Yeah. So uh, perhaps if you start just talking about what you've been doing and, and how it all started for you uh, and how this relates back to, to uh, making Massive Small Change.
2: Well, um, I was very fortunate to study with Chris Alexander, um, but actually, uh, like a lot of people uh, of my age, uh, w- when the pattern language came out, a lot of people read it and were very influenced by it. And then I went back and read uh, A City is Not a Tree, which is a little bit more theoretical, but it all comes down to a very practical. When we think about cities and organizing cities, we think in hierarchies, in tree-like patterns. We think, okay, start with this and then divide it into two, and then there's there's the entrance, and then there's the room over here, and there's the room over here, and you get this sort of branching, 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 tree-like structure, hierarchy. Yeah. Are, uh, and that's not actually the way great cities are formed and not, not what they really are and not what great places are, if you think about it. When we go into a beautiful room, there's a whole network of things going on. It's not just start here, end here, go here. You know, um, it's, it's all interconnecting. It's a web network, as you, know, you might say, rather than a, than a hierarchy. Um, and that's what he meant by the idea, a city is not a tree it's a web network, it's an interconnected structure. And, you know, that sounds a little bit abstract, but it's actually very practical. It's just the idea that everything is connected, you know, and we're all, um, we have to use practical tools in order to make sure that everything is connected when we're working. So that was a big uh, revelation for me. And um, the whole idea of pattern languages, uh, which is the book that I first discovered in 1977, Uh, is that you can actually use that idea, that web network idea, to design and to create what he called patterns that are basically configurations of these web networks that you can work with. Like there's an entrance transition or there's something roughly in the middle or there's, you know, different uh, environmental structures that that capture some of that interrelatedness that's so important. Um, and so I was very inspired by that. And um, as I said, very fortunate to be able to go study with Chris and work with him later in life. Um, and I think there's a whole lot more work to be done in this area, um, as well as, you know, the work that he did, the work Jacobs did, a lot of other people in related areas. So that's kind of a big picture uh, of my, my relationship to Alexander and, and his work. Uh,
0: I was was reading uh, in uh, New Yorker last week uh, about San Francisco Um, the sort of uh, analysis of the sort of this fantastic city is now falling apart or is it really falling apart and I wondered Michael what your take is on the current state of uh, cities in the United States the impression we get here certainly the impression I pick up from um, Twitter is that you know those cities are coming apart whole areas with lots of you know, people zomped on drugs. Is that just a Twitter view or is there some truth in that if cities, these communities are networks at the moment, they're not very healthy?
2: Well, I think this is a great illustration of why people like Alexander and Jacobs are so helpful to understand our world and what's going on in it. Like right now, are our cities falling apart? Well, Jane Jacobs, the other great person that Kelvin just mentioned that I certainly was one of my major influences right up there with Alexander, Um, she said that cities can die, cities can live, cities can go through transitions up and down. They can have a death and life. The death and life of great American cities was her her landmark book uh, where she wrote uh, about, especially American cities, but really all cities and, yeah, they do decline. And think about New York in the 1970s, and everybody said the New York is dead, and, you know, it was going to become yeah. a uh, walled-off prison, remember, escape from New York, et cetera. Well, you know, five yeah, or two years ago down. New yeah. York was completely thriving and 180 degrees from that right well now we've gone into a dip again because of the because of covid and because of frankly some mismanagement and i think there's just some practicality some basics in city government that we have to pay attention to and maybe we took our eye off the ball for a number of reasons um the retail apocalypse which was already underway before you know covid hit and then you got the perfect storm of the retail apocalypse, COVID and governance problems. And yeah, you've got problems, big problems in cities right now. But I think what Jacob said, the wonderful last line of the book, uh, cities contain the seeds of their own regeneration. And this is what we need to look for and work with, not sort of silver bullet top-down solution but you know the massive small solution to coin a phrase
0: that's a good phrase and what are some of the things that you're seeing in american cities and other places that give you hope that this regeneration is possible
2: well there's a lot of um on the ground action a lot of organization at the sort of local and neighborhood level that's doing a lot of positive things Um, And we've seen that in a number of places just so brilliantly, like, uh, uh, you know, even before COVID, uh, the story of uh, Detroit coming back from this sort of economic uh, devastation of the, you know, the corporations all leaving the city. But Detroit also, Jane Jacobs wrote about how it started out as just a sort of small shipbuilding center. And then it had all these different sort of ecology of makers who were doing different things. They were making pulleys and wheels and motors and things. And that became the the fertile ground for building a new automobile industry. And then it went through a huge cycle. If anything, it got overgrown. And then everybody, the corporations left and left the city hollowed out. Now it's coming back and it has been coming back. And people have been building things on the ground and doing all kinds of fantastic, you know, sort of, experiments so cities are um, as Jacobs called them immense laboratories of trial and error you know and people try things they adapt things they they develop things that work and that take o- take on a life of their own and become viral trends and generate new growth and new opportunities for people and so I' I believe that Jacobs was right that cities have this inherent, capacity, this inherent dynamic to grow and become really uh, thriving places. But we often, as planners, especially, and as as government officials and architects and uh, people who are charged with really improving cities, we are often their worst enemies, frankly, because we come in with a very top-down, tree-like, you know, silver bullet solution that that doesn't work. And, And it creates more problems than it then it solved so I think we're it, you know I would characterize the last 50 years or so of urban history as a sort of immense reckoning with our failures and yeah. we're still not through it all the way we're still making pretty horrendous mistakes unfortunately
1: yeah I mean, I, that's right we've we've noticed in fact we've just interviewed Seth Kaplan the guy who wrote the book Fragile Neighbourhoods which I'd, I'd really yeah. recommend people buying And uh, we're going to be interviewing Jeff Siegler um, quite soon, who wrote a book called um, "What's It?" The city, your Your city, City your city is sick. So, and if you look at both of those books, they're in the Jane Jacobs mold. All of a sudden, we start to see people start taking a a people-centered or human-centered view of how places should change. I don't think we've ever we've never really struggled to find bottom-up change happening in old neighborhoods. But we no. really struggle to make that change happen in what we've built in the past 50 years. In other words, I'm talking about post-war neighbourhoods, which right. um, are not really neighbourhoods. They, they tend to be schemes or projects or um, estates. We call them a variety of different things. The right. question is, what is the architectural profession doing about it? If, there's, if, if we're seeing a new a rebirth of, of Jane Jacobs' thinking, are we seeing a rebirth of Christopher Alexander's thinking?
2: I think there is a reckoning going on there too, and I think there are different schools, as there often are in architecture. That's my own background. My Ph.D. is in architecture, and I, you know, I have a a love of the profession, but also an exasperation sometimes of how, you know, we have a moral dilemma in the sense that we can be very easily co-opted by market trends and by fashionable ideas and by fancy universities and and get into sort of group think and and not really become rigorous in our thinking in, in our understanding of what's failing in what we've been doing in the, for example, the fact that a city is not a tree and the city is a, Um, socially, um, you know, constructed, uh, uh, participatory construction by a lot of actors, not just by top-down specialists. And that translates into the need for certain kinds of design tools, collaborative design tools, subsidiary design tools that sort of get more people and more agencies involved in the generation of something like a neighborhood, instead of just making it a sort of um, Engineered product in a way, you know. The um, so I think that what's going on in the architecture profession and planning and the related professions, development engineering, is also in parallel with what's going on in the software world and in organizational theory, which is this new understanding of how to distribute control and how to still maintain and actually generate more better quality order and organization, organized complexity as Jane Jacobs referred to it, um, rather than the old sort of linear waterfall models that have been shown to be so so unsuccessful. And by the way, uh, I mentioned the software world and those folks are way ahead of those of us in the planning and architecture world um with the you know the agile methods and the um uh, the, the collaborative design tools and by the way the um uh the pattern language of programming that they use from alexander a lot of this stuff actually does come from alexander into the uh software world and the engineering world and um and the architects are not aware of that it's like what what are you talking about alexander he's just that cookie guy from the 1970s right well there's a little more there to the story than they realize so i love the profession but i think we've got a long way to go still
0: i think it's it's, it's important not to uh, romanticize too much the tech world as well because a lot of that um, sort of top-down control is there in the with those big tech companies who
2: Oh, absolutely! We'll
0: see a startup, and we'll just put an enormous check on the table and buy no, it, stuff it and, and put it in. But you're you're and, right about the actual, um, you know, the way in which they approach innovation and development. I think there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah.
2: I, mean, I mean, I think we're all struggling with this moral dilemma, right? Of how do we rebalance the the ship of state or the ship of culture to to be to have a better equilib- equilibrium, a healthier equilibrium rather than this sort of too big to fail um, Mm -hmm. structure that we're dealing with that is a a creature of this era of modernity that is going to you know capsize us all if we don't uh, get this right and certainly software people are struggling with this too and there are a lot of you know movements within software to try to wrest control away from these sort of power blocks that are um to have too much power and uh you know um so i, I think that this is a pervasive problem across the uh different uh sectors and disciplines
0: and uh, go ahead
1: yeah i was i was surprised um so chris alexander died about two years ago yeah taken so like two years since then four other great urban theorists have died and i wonder where their thinking has gone to john Hebracken, who wrote open building systems i thought he was mm-hmm. an absolutely amazing guy mm-hmm. and he might become the antidote for the open buildings might become the antidote for the the, the tech approach that's been adopted mm-hmm. uh, the other was john turner who wrote freedom to build and um and uh um, housing for people um he was mm-hmm. a fantastic um person doing some incredibly interesting stuff in the 60s and 70s yeah. uh, the other was uh, bel krishna doshi in in india uh who i always thought was was a hero of mine he worked for a but he kind of gave up the type thinking mm-hmm. and uh, started planning the city of jaipur using old hindu planning principles and then the fourth one was uh, jamie Lerner from curitiba right. of curitiba right. who had this theory about urban acupuncture lots of small projects right but i kind of look and say where are those new urban theorists coming from what is that what is going to happen to our profession? If we haven't listened to these guys and they had such incredibly important messages, how are we going to get a different message across? I mean, that's the struggle. I mean, because Alexander's Alexander's message was incredibly strong for me. But well, as okay. you're right, when I speak to other people, they'll just see him as a guy who wrote funny little books on yellow paper. Uh incredibly good books, but they're not seen. The architectural or planning profession doesn't see his thinking as being relevant.
2: Well, this is uh, really one of my missions as an evangelist to say, look, you know, we just because somebody has died doesn't mean we stop reading them and we need somebody else to tell us the story all over again. You know, we do read Plato. We do read, you know, uh, we read people who have made contributions to the literature and we build on that and we build on that. And that's how science advances and that's how culture advances. And I think one of the things we need to do is is established this corpus that everybody recognizes of people like John Abracon and, and you know the others that you mentioned, Jaime Lerner, um, who have really um, built a foundation that we can all uh, stand on and work from. And I think part of what we need to do now is not so much replace those voices with new voices, but mm-hmm. perhaps have voices that are connecting the dots between them and building a larger story, continuing the narrative, you know, continuing the the picture that we need to understand and act upon uh, when we're going about this massive task of reform that has to be massively small, you know, that has to work at the very small scales, but also be joined up into the larger scale. So that's, to me, that's the big sort of Um, challenge of the day is to um, implement all of these insights from the great um, um, body of leaders, thought leaders, if you will, from um, really from the the postmodern critique of the modern systems and, and how they need to not so much be thrown out and you know we need to start from scratch but we need to understand where the mistakes really were especially in terms of the scale and the the connection between the scales again a theme that comes up often um, and how do we develop tools to work on that to work on that at the small scale at the local scale to to you know uh, act locally but think globally and and you know that that's a perennial challenge and I think that's we just need to keep reminding ourselves. New agents need to come along. I hope I'm one of those, along with many others, who are just reinforcing and, and rebuilding on that legacy, and, and you know, teaching and writing, and uh, and this is what humans have done throughout culture from time immemorial. Um, we have some maybe worrisome forces right now: a lack of attention span, a, a social media that's taking us. Um, you know, into a, a sort of frag, ever more fragmented um, ways of thinking about the world. Um, but I think that just means we have to redouble our efforts to to join up a larger picture of the world that is one we can work with, one we can implement and and uh, turn into action.
0: And Michael, tell us some of the practical things you're doing as part of that mission. How do you, How are you spending your time now?
2: Um, I'm dividing it between a couple of different uh, sort of projects at different scales, you might say. Um, I'm doing consulting for governments, uh, doing things like changing the old um, exclusionary zoning. Uh, uh, You know, there's a a lot of zoning in the United States, certainly. I think it's true in in the UK and in other countries uh, that... Um, has been become, first of all, too rigid and too prescriptive in terms of its, uh, you know, segregating the uses, which is something that Le Corbusier, unfortunately, uh, influenced us to think in terms of pulling the city apart, but it goes back before Le Corbusier goes to uh, even to the Garden Cities and City Beautiful, as Jane Jacobs wrote about. So we need to reform those codes, and I'm I'm very much in the trenches on that kind of work, working for municipalities and for uh, uh, private developers who are working with municipalities to get new codes written, more generative, more pattern-like, more um, you know form-based, and so on. Um, so that's the sort of in the trenches work that's really helpful. Um, and then as you mentioned, I'm doing the books and we're doing the other projects with cystasis where we're um, convening people and and um, doing uh, our own uh, uh, videos and podcasts and things like that. Um, and then there's the other, the, it's a teaching I do as well. I'm teaching a course which we use Jane Jacobs, Death and Life as the um, the core text. For uh, an urban planning course called Sustainable Urbanism, uh, online course, of course, at uh, Arizona State University, um, and uh, and the students love that book. By the way, they uh, just can't believe that it was, it is still so relevant. Uh, so that's that gives me a lot of encouragement to continue with this kind of evangelism of. We need to re, um, re- remind ourselves who these important people were and what they were saying and how it all connects to what we're all trying to do today. And then the other thing is, of course, going out and being an evangelist like I'm doing right now and like... in. A couple weeks, I'll be going to the World Government Summit and giving a a similar kind of talk about cities and networks and how important this is to get it right and to understand our thinking. And this, I'll be speaking to a lot of you know municipal officials and uh, and planners and others. So it's an interesting challenge to uh, to to make something that's accessible within about twenty minutes or so. so that that that's another aspect. One last that I'll mention is that I was asked recently to step in to help run an organization called International Making Cities Livable, uh, started by my dear friend Suzanne Lennard and her husband in 1985, actually. And we're going to be doing a conference in April in Newport, Rhode Island, um, on. Ah, uh, code reforms and transportation reform and other sort of you know where the where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And then another one in October uh, in Cortona, Italy, focused more on um, uh, nature, culture, and history, uh, learning from nature, culture, and history, talking about food and regional economies and urban morphology, a sort of bigger, bigger picture. Um, and I can give you the link if you if any of the listeners are interested in. Uh, checking those out as well. um so those those different things all sort of join up in a nice way and give me a sort of, you know, a sense of what it's like in the trenches, not just you know, at the thirty nine thousand foot theoretical level, but we've got to do both, right? We've got to understand what's what the real nuts and bolts issues are of changing systems, as you guys were saying earlier, it's, it's you know, you've got to actually drive change on the ground. You've got to figure out where the levers are that need to be pulled and what the problems are, the nuts and bolts uh, issues that you come into and the problems of governance of, of you know, human beings who have conflicts and, and agendas and, and self-interest and so on. Um, very fascinating and complex problem to be sure
0: are you finding that the sort of younger emerging generation of architects planners thinkers designers is getting this can we look to generations coming up behind us to 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 take this and and bring it to real impact in cities
2: yes i that's one reason i love teaching is that i get to work with you know students who are at the beginning of their career some of them are mid-career professionals coming back to get a second degree and and they do get it they are inspired and and you know working on the ground and making making real changes and I also work a lot with other NGOs and organizations that are uh, doing amazing things. Um, too too many to name, and I don't want to mention one or two because I'll leave out uh, others that, are, that should be included, but lots of great stuff happening on the ground with different organizations that are um, really innovating and really creating positive change um, at, at the ground level, but it's also connecting up to organizations like UN Habitat who are I'm also very eager to find ways to localize these tools and strategies that we need that implement the, you know, for example, the sustainable development goals and uh, what's called the new urban agenda, which is just very much a sort of massive small kind of project, by the way, talking about empowering local people and um, the, the different agents. A lot of Jane Jacobs in the new urban agenda, a lot of Christopher Alexander, I think. Um, and um, and I, I was involved very uh, briefly in helping to write some of the language, advising them on the language for the uh, public space uh, part of that document. And I, I think it's a great document, but I, I do think the challenge remains for uh, implementation, implementation tools and processes and incentives and uh, realigning some of the incentives that are um, distorted right now.
1: Yeah, there seems to be a disconnect between the big ideas and the implementation of those big ideas. Yeah. Um, I think the Sustainable Development Goals is the classic one. Or the other one that happened recently was the the, the whole COP summit in Dubai. Yeah. um, Where these things become so atmospheric that they never seem to hit the ground. They never seem to hit the ground Mm -hmm. where it really matters to people. And yeah. therefore we kind of stay in this world we stay in this world of talking big big ideas but never been able to get any traction on change at the ground yeah i think it's to do with a lot to do with i think what you mean I, I always made a, um, a connection between the city is a tree and reductionist thinking which mm-hmm. is classically a pipe-like or a tree-like diagram thinking which we oh, yeah. used to and if you look at those if you look at those things they all flow from this idea of a bigger hypothesis and then they struggle to get themselves down to the the, the the ground where it really does matter one of the yeah. things that I um I did when I uh, wrote the book is I um I published your essay uh which was um to do with the difference between new urbanism and Christopher Alexander's view
2: right uh,
1: and I, I was I was sort of it was so it was such a good essay I I found it difficult to sort of edit or I and I said to you can I just publish it as it is and it it um it really talks to this kind of, I always refer to it as, as Venus and Mars. There's kind sort of two yeah. approaches out there and they just don't seem, you can't even seem to have a debate with one another. Because yeah. they seem to be, they're so far away from one another. And I know your experience of, of working in the UK, the Princess Foundation and at other universities. We don't seem to have any debate happening around an alternative to a top-down approach. Right. And the top-down approach is driven by government all the time looking for big ideas. And this profession, in the professions who, Honestly, believe that they can change the world through their top-down approach. Right? How do you, how do you, how do you get this message across? Um, or if, if I come back to my, my question, you yeah. mentioned generative codes. Can you know for the listeners? Can you tell us what generative um, urbanism means compared to traditional urbanism or conventional urbanism, which we practice at the moment?
2: Right. Well, so the first point I want to make is just that this is an inherent. Um, Issue for human beings, right? We are cognitive creatures. We ideate, and then we have to somehow figure out how to implement those ideas. And what we find out, if we're smart, is that the ideas are going to change. Everything is going to co-evolve, and we're not going to end up where we thought we would, you know, be. Um, if if we're smart, uh, if we're dumb, <laughs> we keep stubbornly trying and trying, did, yeah. and trying to implement that grand idea. So there's a tension inherently, I think, in human intelligence and language between our ideations and what we actually do on the ground. And it's a tension, but also a um, sort of reciprocal relationship where we sort of, if it's healthy, we go back and forth and we we iterate and we we generate and we improvise and we test and we gradually transform our ideas, right? And we learn, that's the whole idea of, the, of you know, evolutionary thinking as, uh, and, and collaborative thinking and collaborative design. So the idea of a generative code is really that you put that into practice. You don't just say the building will be here and it will be away from the, you know, it'll be a residence and it'll be away from the factory. You, you, come up with a more subtle, more sort of supple relationship between the different elements that you're working with, that instead of classifying them and then segregating them according to the classification, you figure out what the actual relationships are and the impacts are. If one of them is producing a negative impact on the other, like it's, it's tall and it's casting a shadow, well, you mitigate that impact with a generative code. You say, well, you need to step back a little bit. Or uh, my friend Basim Hakim talks about the generative codes of, of the Islamic world from 500 AD, uh, 600 AD, where you, you could actually, um, you were required to move a window away from the neighbor's window so you weren't looking right into it, which kind of served as, a, as an iterative generative process rather than you shall push the window here, you know. Uh, So it's, it's a really a a different way of thinking about thinking, if you will, about the relationship between thought and action, that's more closely coupled and more iterative. And so when I go to something like I've been to a couple of the cops, now I've been to the uh, World Urban Forum and the um, um, Habitat three conference. Um, And um, what I see is that people are struggling with this. They're trying to figure out what are those mechanisms that can get us into implementation. And in the case of climate change, I did my own uh, dissertation work on that subject. And I know that it is a it is the ultimate wicked problem because it's so embedded with every other kind of problem, you know, the economic problems and the social problems and the, uh, the problems of fake news and the problems of social media and on and on and on. And I think what we have to do is um, figure out where the incentives are currently that are creating the current status, uh, stasis in the system and generating the problems. And then we're going to have to go in and modify those, or change those, overhaul those. Um, and those are going to have to include uh, economic mechanisms like, um, you know, obviously things like. The, the feedback mechanisms for externality costs of greenhouse gas emissions or resource depletion. We're gonna to have to figure out where those mechanisms are and how we do whatever it might be, carbon tax or other kinds of uh, economic feedback systems that change the incentives, which change the behavior. And also other ways of changing the behavior. One of the things, I'm uh, sorry to digress, but just very briefly, one of the really exciting things for me was the idea of neighborhood choice architecture that when we structure our neighborhoods, they then turn around and structure us, a very sort of Churchill's old idea. We make our buildings and they make us. We have a choice architecture in our neighborhoods. If, if it's set up for walking, if it's easy to choose to walk, we will walk. If it's not, no amount of incentives or willful uh, wishful thinking is gonna get us there. So we need to recognize what are the mistakes we've been making in planning our neighborhoods to sort of create a choice architecture around cars and driving in many cases and fix those mistakes, target those mistakes. And So again, it's it's a matter of going from the larger scale down to the smaller scale, from the scale of ideation down to the scale of practical action but not in a linear one-way path. It's gotta be iterative. It's gotta be generative. And I think that's the key to um, uh, driving uh, change. And that's, I think we see that every time when we see successful change on the ground uh, and we need a whole lot more of that.
1: We see top-down as trying to constantly force people through this funnel, the funnel of our thinking. Yeah. And what we experienced with one of our first guests that we had with Matt Potts, was he was looking t- he was looking at the problem through the other side of the lens and he found a far better solution uh-huh. we seem unable because we start with a big idea we start with a big uh-huh. fear and I-, I use the word fear all the time it's interesting seth kaplan said the other day that unless we build our social fabric rebuild our social fabric why are we trying to save the planet yeah right? it- and, he- and he's right you know who are we doing it for and interesting Matt Potts's view on homelessness which uh, we we kind of rehearsed quite often was actually the real problem with homelessness is that people have no friends. So we have to find a sort of almost a different way of looking at solving the problem yep. and say the issue of homelessness. Right. Trouble with us is we we start with we start with those big things, you know, those big big ticket items that are out there, and yeah. and then we try and find a strategy to put that big ticket item into into play. Yeah, right. That's the challenge. Why did you think that Christopher Alexander struggled to get his message across? Why, why isn't why isn't generative urbanism the only way at the moment?
0: Well, um, to, to a non-professional, non-architect, non-planner, yeah. it just seems like such a no-brainer that yeah, that's, that's where you would go to if you wanted to create cities. Is it is it simply politicians are, are, have a different agenda? Investors are not particularly interested in that; they're interested in you know price per square meter.
2: I think what Alexander said in um, a city is not a tree is that this is really a fundamental problem of the way we humans think. That's it. Yeah. We, we, we think in linear ways and this is our power, but also our weakness. Right. And so um, if, You know, Calvin, your example of sort of breaking out of the linear path and going to the other side, so to speak, is something we really have to force ourselves to do. And we need techniques to do that. We need tools to do that. We need processes when we're working with other people and when we're dealing with social fabric and and how to build social fabric within a community that will allow us to do that, um, because it's it's Far too hard. Otherwise, it's not the normal course of human um, uh, action. And I think that the 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 way that our brains are set up is the point that Alexander made uh, is that we we do tend to have the big idea and then try to um, elaborate on that, elaborate on that, and uh, rather than once in a while break out of that and and come up from the bottom, you know, with the theme that we're going around here is the issue of top down versus bottom up, right? And I think maybe that's a misframing of the relationship. It's really how do top down and bottom up mesh in some way. How do we allow big ideas, because we do need big ideas occasionally, um, to mesh and to integrate with the bottom up Activities and the generative activities, where maybe the next big idea is going to come from. Uh, so we we have to think differently about the relationship between top down and bottom up. I think, um, and to to go to your specific question about Alexander, I think for him he was always working on that problem, but he was never outside of it, so to speak. It really was for other people to figure out the implementation. I think. He was sort of in the mode of a um a primary investigator who says i'm "I'm working on this problem, I've got some ideas. here they are." but he he didn't actually ever fully figure out the implementation problem. And I think he was one person, you know, and I think that we need part of the message here is that it's not just one person. All of us are smarter than any of us. and all of us need to work together collectively. To figure out the implementation processes, to figure out the problem of climate change, to figure out the problem of uh, cities that are becoming dysfunctional, it's not a problem that any one person can can solve. On the other hand, we do need visionaries. We do need people with big ideas. They have a role. They're just not the the sole answer to the problem.
0: But, I think one of the skills we all need to develop, and I you know I say this a lot to the entrepreneurs that I mentor is you can have a great idea you can you can be very very good at business but unless you're good at building partnerships and unless you're good at sitting in rooms with people you may not agree with particularly yeah. in order to find ways of collaborating some of these great ideas will just remain great ideas and not be executed and certainly can't uh, scale either vertically or horizontally yeah it's something we need i think yeah. we assume too much that how to build partnerships? How to sit in rooms with people you disagree with? Is something you could just kind of make up on the spot, whereas I think we need to we need to learn how to do that.
2: I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think of um, a couple of examples from, you know, the world of entrepreneurs and and uh, uh, Musk, for example. And I think what he, I don't know him, his his work specifically, but I know that it seems to me he was less about collaborating with other people. He's much more of a sort of top-down figure, as I understand it, and more about finding other systems that are already built and then agglomerating those into larger systems, going out and finding existing rockets and pulling them into this new thing called SpaceX, etc. And that's another strategy that's in a way a kind of collaboration. It's not collaboration with people, it's collaboration with Systems that are already there, but I think you're absolutely right that if we're going to get anywhere in implementation of these social problems—not so much uh, individual entrepreneurial projects, but social problems that involve governance and involve society, involve the public in the public realm—that's a very different animal, and you can't just, you know, command and control. Yeah, uh, you you do have to. Um, build alliances and collaborations and uh, for example, I I've been very interested in building collaborations between different institutions like the Princes Foundation and some of the universities and also uh, some of the American institutions um, the the Alexandrians and the new urbanists, you know who okay, let's just acknowledge they both have their their weaknesses, but, they could be complementary. some of those weaknesses, right? The top down and the bottom up and so on. And we can all be stronger together rather than having these rivalries and these very sort of petty, um, you know, parochial disputes. um, Perhaps, and this is a a chronic problem in the architecture profession and the architecture field. You know, I have my school and it's not like your school. You guys are all wrong. Let's figure out how we can actually... Um, find some common ground and find the larger problems that we're all not necessarily recognizing yet and learn from one another. And I, yeah, I, I absolutely think that's fundamental to what all that we have to do professionally and uh, as, a, uh, as a species, ultimately.
1: When I came to the end of your essay, I kind of realized that that's when I mentioned the Venus and Mars argument, is that they're really so far away from one another Mm -hmm. and it's difficult to find that common ground it's it's a complete completely different way of thinking about solving the problem and i think that's the thing that worried me about it is and and of course the the urbanists have got a pretty much mainstream view of how we should be designing and it's quite a compelling view you know i I often say i bought the t-shirt i don't i don't wear it that often but um alexandrian view which was how do we see this through the other side of the lens which is what we're talking about here um and why are we not why do the professions not see it through the other side of the lens now i i, I probably have an answer to that i'll probably try and answer it maybe you can answer it as well i mean i grew up uh, as a as an architect in the sort of the ayn rand fountainhead view of the world that the architect is going to change the world through the, his action you know i kind of believed that that's the reason i started studying architecture um only to realize that you really have very little control over doing it mm-hmm. what you're seeing at the moment is a profession that used to be this universal profession reduced to almost being product designers in the process mm-hmm. so we've diminished an entire profession we're not learning uh, about the city as a as a complex adaptive system we are seeing it as a mechanical system you know Mike Batty's view of the world about see the city as an organism not a not not a, not a mechanical model um, mm-hmm. Or Peter Senge uh, taking a view, which is uh, see complex adaptive systems. Your role as a gardener in this process, rather okay. than the mechanic in the workshop.
2: Right. So, That's well, a metaphor is, I use as well. By the way.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's. It, we almost seem to be so far away from one another that you wonder how you'd have this argument. How do you collaborate? How do you how do you corral a group of people around an idea or around a concept or view that? There's a different way of doing it. And we can learn from those old theorists. We can learn from all those guys we mentioned a bit earlier. They all had incredibly good views, but people are not learning about them anymore. Yeah. You know, when I, speak, when I speak to students and I'll say, have you heard of Christopher Alexander? And I'd say 50% of them have probably heard of him because of pattern language. Yeah. Um, probably more planners would know about Jane Jacobs because she's, so, she's quoted so liberally but you really push them on what jane jacobs was trying to say around organized complexity they really don't understand that no so the question i've got can you organize complexity
2: well that was her insight is that yes you can or actually maybe that's the wrong way to put it Uh, what you can do is um, participate in its self organization you can you can direct the self-organization as an as a co-creator of the city along with all the other people who are Self-organizing um, as as part of the city. But I go back to your earlier point, and I think it is a fundamental distinction in in human thought. You know, uh, Kahneman and Tversky wrote about the 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 fast and slow systems of thought. Um, and I think there's something very similar in the sense that we need both of those. When we overemphasize one or the other, we get ourselves into big trouble. And evolution has given us both of those systems in order to check and balance each against the other. And I think that's, in a way, what we need to do with the top-down and the bottom-up as well. We have a kind of runaway, top-down mentality going on in our, in our systems. Uh, and we have to balance that and temper that. Um, and it's very hard to do that because you, you can't just say, well, just be loosey-goosey and open, you know, I, I know you know this. Um, you have to actually talk in precise terms about what the bottom-up processes look like and how they need to work. And those precise terms have to be localized. You can't talk generally about something that is inherently specific to a given set of actors and 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 this was the great insight of of jacobs in the, her last chapter of death and life called the kind of problem a city is and she said something along the lines of it's the 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 problems are inherently local and this is at once the greatest problem and the and the fundamental characteristic of these problems that they are local that they they are unique variables working in a given setting in a in a unique way in a unique context and you have to approach it that way so there, there are tools you can use to do that there are observational tools there are uh, reduct uh, thinking in terms of induction rather than reduction, reduction, reductive uh, thinking, and so I highly commend that last chapter of Death and Life to everybody to read and reread. Um, it's got some wonderful insights, and and the whole book does actually, um, and I think it also talks not just about the city but about these other systems that we're dealing with just as alexander um, alexander's ideas talking about buildings turned out to have immense value for software engineers and agile methodology developers and wiki and wikipedia people and you know people that you wouldn't think were dealing at all with the problems of um, buildings and environments Uh, and yet it's the same kind of problem it's the problem of human beings translating thought into action and human beings figuring out how to make things, you know, in in a sense, it's all technology, technologos, you know, knowledge of making. And um, I think we're in the middle of a technological revolution that is gonna be different from all the others because it's fundamentally changing the definition of what technology is. That, I'm gonna try to make that point in my talk in a couple of weeks. we're really uh, transforming the idea of technology as something that is not this external top-down idea into form uh, reductive process. it's it's a human thing. It's human making. It's humans encountering the world and shaping the world and adapting to the world through a process, through an evolution, through a self-organization. And I think that's really. Uh, transforming, and and we're we're still kind of early in a, in that transformation, but I do believe it's happening, uh, and I I am tremendously excited by the progress we've made, even though it's incredibly hard and incredibly uh, frustrating sometimes. Yeah,
1: I think um, people have been posing that view of top down and bottom up being distinctly different, and therefore they polarizing forces. Mm. In many ways, bottom up systems in a short space of time create their own top down systems anyway. So you mm-hmm. can't have the one without the other.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Uh, so the real question is, what is the nature of top down in a world that needs to facilitate more bottom up? And mm-hmm. at the moment, we have two systems at work. We have the big real estate developer model, which is kind mm-hmm. of building our cities, which is classically following the system, following zoning regis- legislation, et cetera, et cetera, or um, codes, whatever approach has been adopted versus the informal um, model, uh, which is do things despite government. And both of those are failures of a system which doesn't recognize the nature of top-down to facilitate that bottom-up change. Right. I think that debate about what's the nature of top-down in this kind of different world where governments can't solve all these problems and governments recognize now increasingly that they can't solve these problems. Mm-hmm. The real debate should take place not really necessarily between a a new urbanist view and and an Alexander view, but what is the nature of top-down in an increasingly bottom-up world? Mm -hmm. That should be the challenge here.
2: Yeah, I think that's very insightful. And uh, when you were talking, I was reminded of something that I've often said to my students, uh, which is with apologies to uh, real estate uh, uh, agents, the three major problems of design are scale, scale, and scale. And I think... When it comes to the top down and the bottom up and how they fit together the problems are scale scale and scale you know fundamentally the thing we get wrong is is the scale and the linking between the scales Um, and that's where i think we have something to go on when we go into the system if we think of it differently and we get out of the sort of um dialectical or or the rigid uh, dichotomy between is it top-down, is it bottom-up, is it the people, is it the experts, is it the authorities, is it the mob, is it, you know, all of these sort of rigid um, polarizations that are going on today and go through that and sort of look at it in a completely different light as a problem of scale and what is going on at the right scale or going on at the wrong scale And then I think we have a lot to go on to deal with our challenges and to restructure our systems. Um, Quite often, it's a matter of breaking larger scales into smaller scales. Sometimes it's the other way around, figuring out how to assemble smaller scales into larger scales. Maybe that's what Elon Musk does so well, right? That's what... the, the General Motors um, uh, uh, Sloan did when he assembled that great corporation out of a whole bunch of components. Um, so m- maybe that's a way to think about it and to go about it. And then to think about, well, what are the social uh, contexts and social systems, collaborative systems that we would need in order to go at a given problem. Um, and, and then that's a, a way that we can think about it more effectively. I, I do think that's a way forward, you know, in thinking about these challenges. Okay.
1: Michael, we're going to um, try and bring it to, to an end, but you have been called the evolutionary place network guy, what does that mean?
2: <laughs> so one of the things that I recognized about cities, well, one of the things I recognized about our field is that there are a lot of really good ideas floating around and they're not really very well sort of joined up into a, uh, you know, a grand unified theory, if you will. Um, There's, Alexander has a part of it, Jacobs has a part of it, Lynch has a part of it. A lot of people, you talked about a number of them uh, uh, earlier. Um, And people in other fields, people who have looked at systems and how they operate, uh, great Herbert Simon or René Tom, the mathematician or Bruno Latour, actor network theory. Many people in many fields who have, I would say parts of the mosaic yeah. And what I began to realize uh, so some years ago was that there's a way of looking at cities and at neighborhoods that does join up all the scales and that recognizes that, you know, one of the great insights of our time is in, is comes from network science and the understanding of how networks actually work in the natural world and work in the human world. And this is a revolution that has informed, you know, computer science and organization theory and lots and lots of fields. It's been incredibly productive. And what you can see, if you look carefully, um, is that the city itself is a self-organizing network of spaces. They're they're room-like spaces um, that uh, you know we all need to have. A certain amount of connection at different times of the day and our over span of our lives, and a certain amount of privacy uh, at different scales. And we have rooms that will control that, and I can close the window, open the door, draw the blinds, etc. But we also have room-like spaces out in the public realm where we can set out a picnic blanket and create a kind of a room that, even though it's in the public park, if somebody steps on it, that would be that would not be. Uh, uh, appropriate behavior. Um, And you can see that the whole city is really this cellular network structure, this place network. Um, And that insight really brings a lot of um, benefits in terms of thinking about how all these different problems are structural and structuring, you know, its, pro- its product and its process at the same time. It's something that people are doing all the time at different scales of time and space, them closing windows, opening doors, uh, building additions, uh, building whole new buildings, etc., uh, transforming a whole city like Venice into some incredible, articulated, beautiful structure, etc. So that's the idea of place networks, and um, it's something that I'm uh, particularly uh, amazed by when I go around. You know, once you sort of see the world this way, you you can't unsee it. Everywhere you go, you see these wonderful room-like spaces that people are making out in the street and the parklets and the um, you know areas on the sidewalk and in the public parks and all over the city, colonizing these spaces and making, bringing them to life in this sort of dynamic, self-organizing way. So. Um, that's my my uh, my passion at the moment and uh, something i'm actually working on a book project about and uh, you're talking about new year, new year's resolutions and that's mine is to try to get that get that damn book finished this year
0: okay well we'll hold you to that we'll be back in touch with you uh, later in the year to see whether and you've made it and if you need
1: any happen. help just shout uh, i mean what we're trying yeah. to do with this um, the series of podcasts is just to try and communicate to the wider network that there there is a different way of looking at at the problem yeah so um really really good to have you on board uh um, michael well it's wonderful that chat.
2: you're doing this and all your work uh kelvin and and you know the massive small approach is absolutely i'm i'm uh uh enthusiast as you know and uh a collaborator uh, at whatever level you would like um and uh very happy to be on board and to be uh carrying the conversation forward
0: thank you so much thanks again cheers